Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. This week, the eyes of the world turn toward Louisville, Kentucky, as it prepares to remember and celebrate the life of its native son, Muhammad Ali. On tonight's show, we also look to Louisville and to its nearby northern sister city across the Ohio River, Cincinnati. Here in the 1840s and 1850s, the complex issues of race, slavery, and sectionalism, as well as religion and immigration, all came into focus at close range. People in Massachusetts and Alabama might stereotype one another from a distance, but on the border between North and South it wasn't so simple. We'll look deeper into this troublesome mix that ended in four years of bloody civil war with Professor Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in the Civil War Borderland. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight on the second Wednesday in June 2016 from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Extension at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, nor representing the university or anybody else, nor will my guest speak for anyone else. I cannot speak for anyone else tonight because there's nobody else home, just me and the animals. Candy, the elderly cat, sitting at my feet somewhere, and Heidi, the standard poodle, lying unconscious on the bed, as is almost always the case. Uh, they're old, but they're, they're fun. Uh, it's just me. Uh, other family members are traveling or doing their summer jobs or have moved out and started their own lives altogether. So, uh, a quiet night here at Civil War Talk Radio headquarters. Uh, but a happy one as uh, last week I had the pleasure of driving home from the uh, Society of Civil War Historians Conference in Chattanooga. And uh, while driving, was listening, was hoping to listen to uh, uh, 
college baseball. The ECU Pirates were playing national champion Virginia in the NCAA tournament. Couldn't get it on the radio, so I was following it on online with the cell phone, not watching it closely. My eyes were on the road, both hands on the wheel. But occasionally I would just refresh the, the scoreboard page and see what the score was. And in the ninth inning, we were losing 6-3. to three. And I refreshed again, and it was 6-4. to four. And I drove a few more miles, and it was 6-5. to five, And I was getting excited. And a few more miles, I hit refresh again. And it was 8-6, to six, which could only mean someone had hit a walk-off home run. That's just what had happened. And the Pirates went on to win the regional tournament, and they're off to the Super Regionals this weekend against Texas Tech. So to all listeners in Texas, you're out of luck. Here come the Pirates. It was fun, I will say, uh, not just driving back, but attending the Society of Civil War Historians Conference uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Great to see uh, and to meet, really, for the first time, many people who've been on the show in the past year or two or five in some cases. It, it's a sort of odd experience, uh, but but a, a very pleasant one to walk up to someone and, and that I've never actually met before in person and, and we both look at each other and see the name tags and oh yeah we talked for an hour we shake hands and uh, it, it's it's an interesting way to get acquainted with people and it was also good to meet a lot of uh, people who've written interesting things but haven't been on the show yet and uh, to any if you're listening and you're one of those folks and I haven't gotten back to you if you sent me an email since Sunday I apologize I haven't responded to all of them yet I'm working on it. Uh, thanks for your patience, but I'm looking forward to setting up shows with you and with all the interesting uh, authors and uh, park service people and historians of all kinds uh, that I got to meet there. It was, it was a, a very good trip. Got to see some sites that every Civil War person ought to see. I uh, drove up Lookout Mountain for the first time. Uh, what a spectacular place that is to see the whole Chattanooga area laid out, all the maps suddenly become clear. You've seen, of course, uh, I'm sure every listener has seen those photographs of the soldiers perched on Sunset Rock or the other uh, cliffs along the top of Lookout Mountain with their legs dangling over the edge, hundreds of feet above the ground, thousands even. I get queasy just looking at those pictures. I'm not comfortable with heights. So to actually be on or very near those rocks and looking, thinking just a few steps forward and straight down. Um, it was quite an experience, highly recommended. And a place uh, I saw for the first time, didn't know anything about, was Fort Dickerson uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. If you're driving through there, find your way off the interstate, go, go visit Fort Dickerson. It's a public park with a really well-preserved earthwork in it, very interesting. So lots of good things to see on the trip and thoroughly enjoyed it. Still also getting over the, uh, the, the excitement from the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours trip the week before. One place we did not see in Gettysburg that I only learned about this week uh, is an institution called Civil War Tales, uh, spelled T-A-I-L-S. And if I understand correctly from the website, it is a... Uh, it's in a, an historic building in Gettysburg, the one where the, the Sergeant Humiston, 154th New York, 
uh, died, the man who died with a photograph in his hand and no one knew who he was, but they figured it out from the pictures. It's a great story. Now someone has occupied that building and is building, if I understand correctly, dioramas of Civil War scenes in which all the figures are tiny cats in uniform made out of clay. I could have that wrong, or I could have just dreamed that, uh, perhaps, in a, a feverish moment last night, but I think that's what's there, and I'll have to go check it out next time. Well, other things to check out in the future. Next week, Mark Bielski of Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours joins us, not in that guise, but in his author's hat, uh, author of Sons of the White Eagle and the American Civil War, Divided Poles in a Divided Nation. It's about Polish officers on both sides. I have an advanced reading copy with a different title, so I've been giving giving weird titles the last couple weeks, but that's from Amazon. That's the real title that I can tell. And then on June 22nd, Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr. with his book on Civil War Alabama. And that will do it for the season, but lots of great shows are already getting uh, scheduled for September. People uh, who I got to talk with at the Society of Civil War Historians Conference and others so be sure to stay tuned. Click on impedimentsofwar.org to find out what's going on. You can also buy books there. Click on the, uh, the links to Amazon and they get some pass-through support. You can also find the PayPal donation button, which uh, came in handy this past week, I will say. The uh, state of North Carolina budget being what it is. East Carolina University history professors now have an annual travel budget for conferences and research and anything else you want to do uh, of $250. After you pay for the uh, conference fee, about $100, that does not quite get you all the way from Greenville to, to Chattanooga. Uh, so uh, it requires a little extra funding. So your donations to the show actually helped scholarship in this past week, and I appreciate them very much. But they're not tax deductible because I'm not a charity. I'm just an individual, a free market enterprising uh, Civil War person. So you cannot deduct them, uh, and I do declare them. Uh, so, so no one's cheating the government here. Don't, don't worry about that. Enough of that. Let's talk Civil War tonight. The book is titled Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. The author, Bridget Ford, is Associate Professor of History at California State University, East Bay. Uh, Professor Ford was not, as far as I can tell, at the Society of Civil War Historians Conference last week, so we didn't get a chance to meet, uh, but we'll do it right now. Professor Ford, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be invited to this forum. Well, it, it's good to have you. I, so, so I gather you didn't get a chance to, uh, you weren't at Chattanooga last week by any chance, were you? I was not, no. Just want to make sure I didn't somehow miss you in the crush of historians uh, throughout the hotel. Uh, so you are, uh, I'm looking at the dust jacket, professor, associate professor of history, California State University, East Bay, uh, what is California State University East Bay? We are one campus of 21 within the 
California State University system, and uh, the whole system has about 450,000 students in it. We at East Bay have about 13,000 students. We are located in the Bay Area of California, uh, just south of Oakland, uh, in the heart of Warriors country, uh, if anybody's following basketball right now. Um, And uh, we're a very unique school. Um, A few years ago, the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, noted that California State East Bay in particular was the most diverse campus in the United States, in the mainland United States. That was just a couple of years ago, and we're um, a campus that works very hard to support um, first-generation students in a diverse campus, and so uh, it's a a real pleasure to work at that campus. Um, We aren't, we're, we're distinctive from the University of California, which has uh, you know, are the research universities, but at East Bay and at the other California State campuses, we do, um, we're both teachers and scholars. That, that's, so, uh, go ahead, please. Yeah, so it's, it is a little harder for us to do our research there with our uh, teaching responsibilities, but um, as we might discuss uh, in this hour, my teaching definitely shaped this book maybe to a larger degree than um, someone at a research university. So it's, um, it's, uh, it's an important part of my, uh, my professional life, uh, being at that particular school. That it's, I'm very interested in that. What, what is the teaching load like for, for the history department? We, we're uh, a quarter system. Okay. And we teach three courses per quarter. So I teach nine classes a year. But one of the main experiences that I've had at East Bay has been teaching the large U.S. history survey class. And I've always taught it. And uh, so I, I teach large numbers of students every quarter, sometimes, you know, a couple of hundred students each quarter. Wow. And uh, so... You know, and our our university very much tends towards more of the professional fields, I guess you might say, social work or health sciences. And so mo- most of the students who come into my classes are not history majors. So that's also been a defining part of my professional life is teaching to non-history majors and also to Californians. So bringing that Civil War history to life for them has uh, been an interesting experience for me. Well, that, up to that point, everything you said really resonated here at, at East Carolina University. We are uh, theoretically a research, but not a research one university, but we do have a lot of first-generation students. Uh, most of our students, most of my students are not history majors. They're uh, taking uh, the required courses and, and so, as service courses, so I, I know what you mean. Uh, how, how I find it very stimulating and and and, and interesting to teach uh, students who aren't history majors and are getting their first exposure to uh, what you and I might call real history. <laughs> but uh, but it can be challenging as well. Um, 
the difference, though, you, you, you said your students uh, here in North Carolina, they've all heard of the Civil War, and many of them have opinions about it. You, you say your experience is different. Your students are, how do you get them engaged in it? Well, we do have students at East Bay who um, come from families that, you know, fathers introduce sons to Shelby Foote and so forth. I mean, those students are here. That um, There is that reach, and they come to our classes very knowledgeable about the Civil War, and I, I very much enjoy having those students in my classes. But for the most part... The students uh, in the lower division classes uh, who are taking the U.S. History Survey because it's a required class, um, I I think generally don't have a very um, strong feel for the Civil War. Um, They're too young to have watched Ken Burns at this point. and I think they also, I think, interestingly come into the classes with a, a, a perspective that they must be getting in high school classrooms um, that I think uh, shows the Civil War to have been a very morally compromised war in many ways. Um, and I, that's something I've often worked with or talked to within um, my classes or that we've tried to address in mm-hmm. in my class. And I think that does have some bearing on the book as well. I, um, I'm just going to step in here just for a minute because we do need to take a short break. Sure. We'll right back. We'll talk more about uh, with Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. I want to ask about the many interesting chapters in this book, and the topics they touch on religion and immigration and race and politics. But one quick question before you start. You mentioned uh, Shelby Foote. You mentioned... Uh, uh, Ken Burns, uh, incidentally. What about, uh, how did you get interested in Civil War as a, a topic of, of research or writing? Well, I think it's fair to say I'm an accidental Civil War historian. I, um, in graduate school, I studied cultural history in the antebellum or 19th century generally. And it was really only in the course of doing my research that I came to the point where the Civil War was unavoidable. And I, I think part of the effort of my book is to bring together some of the strands of the work being done in 19th century history that often was separated. Uh, cultural history sometimes didn't veer into the Civil War and stood apart from it. And I ultimately wanted to see if I could bring those two fields together. Um, Certainly, cultural historians have been working um, on the Civil War itself for some time now, but I I think connecting that antebellum or pre-Civil War cultural history and the Civil War itself um, is something I wanted to, to do in this book to see more continuity. But I, I didn't have experiences as a young person growing up in California with thinking about, deeply about the Civil War, although my, my mom was earned her Ph.D., in history when I was a senior in high school, and she studied the 19th century, although she studied women's history. Uh, so my introduction to history was really through, unusually, my, my mother. <laughs> hmm. uh, and then when I went back to, when I went to graduate school myself, um, then I delved into religious history and cultural history, and but it was the research itself that took me uh, into the Civil War, and I, I wanted to take the things I was examining and, and pull it through the Civil War. So I set myself up for a, a difficult challenge, and especially in the region I was studying. I, I don't think, had I known how complex it was, I might, might have stopped myself at some point along the way, but I... Uh, pressed on to try and uh, tease out these connections. Well, I, I would say this is an unusual book it, from a, a Civil War point of view, certainly. Uh, there are plenty of social historians who write on Civil War topics, but, but even within the, the cultural history uh, 
thread, you take some, some different approaches. Uh, starting with the, the regional focus, you mentioned that Louisville and, and Cincinnati are the two main characters, geographically speaking. Why, why did you choose to, to center your research there? Well, for the 19th century, I think that um, there's a bias in the profession towards eastern seaboard cities mm-hmm. um, that are allowed to stand in for U.S. history. I, I, mean, I hesitate to say that as a blanket statement, but um, if you move into the region I looked at, you're considered not a national historian, but a, a regional historian. And I, I think that's not... Uh, I, I think we would do well to um, understand more deeply the history of Ohio or Kentucky, you know, Kentucky in the case of this work and its centrality to this era, um, particularly for cultural history, I think, um, that these were important places, too, in defining um, America's lives, shaping the course of the 19th century. And I think they, they are somewhat neglected. Now, Cincinnati and Louisville, um, once I had focused on the Ohio River Valley, I um, wanted... To, I needed a better focus, I guess. I chose these two cities. Um, I thought it would be interesting to look at a northern and a southern city. Of course, they're, because they are complex places, it, it did prove very challenging for me to figure out which variables I was looking at and um, without it becoming an overwhelming project. I had north and south and black and white and Protestant and Catholic all in play. And so it was definitely a challenging project to hold them all together in one book. But I I thought these were both fascinating cities. And I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm really um, glad that I chose them. Um, They, one starting point for me within each of the cities uh, were the African-American communities in both cities. And from that, those places, I was able to really build my study or from those communities build this study. And so I think uh, I'm, the urban environment um, is very important to this, uh, this examination. And I think plays a, a very significant role here. Um, and they were unique relative to their region, um, Louisville and Kentucky and uh, Cincinnati and Southern Ohio. So they are um, powerful characters, as you say, in this book. It's interesting to see how different they are, given how geographically close they are, uh, yet how they they come out. There are so many interesting bits here. As you point out, you you look at religion, you look at race, just pulling out one one example, you have a, a section where you talk about the the uh, attempts of the free black communities in these cities to maintain their their footholds, their status at a time when they are subject uh, in Cincinnati certainly to to periodic riots by by 
groups of, of white people who, who destroy black prop, black owned property and, and uh, attack them physically. And one way they do this is is playing the the class card over the race card. That if white mm-hmm. Cincinnatians want to be successful in this rough hewn brand new city where nobody knows who your parents are you can only do it by wearing the right clothes and the right hair and showing people you belong to the the gentry or the the middle class and to do that you need a good stylist and to do that you're hiring a free black person uh who who, which makes them the arbiters of society Uh, i I thought that was Mm -hmm. a fascinating argument uh could you elaborate on that uh sure um yeah, I, I think um, when we think about 19th century United States and in Ohio in, in particular, I think there's a, a fairly powerful narrative in the historiography or in, in conventional perception that Ohio was extremely inhospitable to African Americans and that racism was extremely powerful. While I don't try to discount that um, in this book, and, and I did try to illuminate uh, those forces in Ohio as well as in, in Louisville, there are other stories happening there. And one of them is this common pursuit of refinement or middle-class status. And... Um, it was a very powerful way for blacks and whites to communicate with each other, talk to each other, and um, understand each other. And in many ways, um, black Americans in Cincinnati and Louisville as well are shaping middle-class appearances, behavior. They're defining it, it seemed to me, as much as white middle-class Americans were doing so. And so I um, I suppose in the larger sense, I was trying to show where white and black Americans had a, sh- a shared discourse and a shared project. And certainly middle-classness and refinement was one of those. And it uh, was definitely a political tool for African Americans as well. Uh, to claim rights uh, and civil rights in Ohio. Uh, but I, I think um, one of the larger purposes of the book was, was definitely to show, um, although that there are these many divisive forces uh, in American life in the 19th century before the Civil War, there are also these areas where people find common ground and middle-classness was, was one of them for this um, very divided city. Let me ask a, a, another question from the early part of the book where you're talking about religion in, these, in the Ohio River Valley generally, the West more generally. Uh, the United States is mostly Protestant, but with influx of immigrants from Europe, you have a large Catholic influx, and you make the point that Catholics and Protestants use different techniques 
uh, tied in with what they believe uh, in terms of gaining converts and where Protestants rely more on, on, on speech, on, on preaching uh, to, to win souls. Uh, the Catholic Church traditionally has used uh, ritual and architecture and, and vestments and, and uh, beauty and, and uh, pageantry to, uh, to display its authority. And you make the argument that the two sides, the two religions, uh, start using each other's tools because mm-hmm. that's it's something that, that, again, in Civil War literature, there's not a lot of attention traditionally paid to soldiers' religion, probably not as much as should be. Uh, and I thought that was a very interesting argument. Right. I, um, I think it's an important backdrop to... Uh, understanding the Civil War, what people brought into the Civil War, their experiences, but I think also just in terms of defining the culture of that moment, uh, there was tremendous amount of anti-Catholicism and um, a real sense in this in the Ohio River Valley of this national security crisis. I don't know how else to describe it with. Uh, the arrival of thousands of Catholics and their priests into this region. And yet, over time, in the, in the 30s, and especially in the 40s and the 50s, Protestants and Catholics were in this heated competition with each other. And they uh, began to look at each other and study each other and uh, detect the... Um, you know the strongest powers of of their religious opponents here, and ended up looking fairly similar to each other. Protestants building what, by all appearances, had a very Catholic-looking church architecture, almost cathedral-like style of architecture, and um, the Catholics, for their part, adopting the evangelist um, evangelistic techniques of. Protestants, but I think uh, what I wanted to show is that uh, these two groups that had seemed so at odds, or at least from the literature, there was so much um, conflict between them that they had reached a a sort of detente by the 1850s and uh, had a certain familiarity with each other, but also um, I think that they... They show a certain flexibility within 19th century Americans' lives that people believed they could be, they were susceptible to change and they could be moved by a speaker, moved by a particular architectural space or a beautiful place, and that their natures could change. I think one of the... um, I think errors in the way we treat the 19th century is that people were fixed or locked into identities. And I think in the 19th century there was a considerable amount of movement and change and investigation of other peoples. And um, and I think that is important to know as you then look at the Civil War itself that the culture seemed to me more amenable to change 
than we might otherwise imagine. And it, the religion story allowed me to tell that story. And then more deeply, I became fascinated by this attention to bonds. Um, and I guess this was one of the starting points for my exploration of this phrase, bonds of union, <laughs> um, which was used in a religious sense, um, to be sure, about the bonds of a particular religious community. But in the decades that I studied, uh, in, increasingly both Protestants and Catholics were, were looking at the human bonds, what connected them to each other. And I, I found that Americans, you know, before the Civil War were just fascinated by this phrase bonds um, and what holds us together and what are our bonds of union. It was a very distinctive phrase that they used. And so exploring religion enabled me to examine that, what they thought they meant when they were speaking about bonds of union uh, in a very direct way. But I, I think more deeply we can see Americans not locked into a particular identity as a Protestant or a Catholic, but often investigating um, the other side, as it were, and borrowing styles and traditions and practices that we might think were um, very far away from their native practices. So I thought that was an important perspective to bring Absolutely. to understanding all of the momentous change of the Civil War itself. Um, we're going to step in. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more with Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, 
Back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in the Civil War Borderland. It's a book that explores the decades before the Civil War in the Ohio River Valley, specifically Louisville and Cincinnati, looks at changes in religion, changes in race relations, changes in politics, and how these ultimately lead to the Civil War. Um, Bridget, let me ask you a a question. We were talking about religion, uh, the the conflict between Protestant and Catholic Americans uh, competing for converts in this era and place. When you're writing about this topic, do you, I guess traditionally among historians, there's a tendency for historians to be, uh, many of them agnostic, at least in their application uh, of of evidence to the, the past. Specifically, I'm recalling a discussion once in a seminar in graduate school. I think we were talking about A Shopkeeper's Millennium by Paul Johnson. And the question came up, the question was, why did these people convert? Why did they have these conversion experiences? And people are arguing economic reasons and class reasons and identity reasons. And uh, the question never came up, what if the Holy Spirit spoke to them? What if they were actually had a conversion experience? Uh, when you're writing about religion, how do you deal with that question where some of what you're writing about, it involves matters of faith that can't, that aren't susceptible to historical evidence in the same way as other questions might be? Well, I, I think that um, I let the record speak as much as I could for itself in that respect, particularly about um, how people felt in their personal experience of faith. They wrote quite a lot about that, and um, I think I just let that language stand, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. I think that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I personally didn't grow up in a religious household, and yet I was always, as a, even as a child, very intrigued by what drew people to faith. And um, I watched televangelists on TV to sort of try to figure this out a little bit. Growing up in the um, 1980s, that was a bit of a phenomenon then. Um, and I... I guess I, I always had a great deal of respect for religious communities and believers and those who sustained a community of faith. Um, but I think for me, in delving into historical uh, records, was my default was to allow them to speak for themselves. Um, well, I mean, that being, that shows in the book. I, I would say it doesn't. It, I, I didn't. No one, it did not give me the impression of here's an academic writing about religion, like it's a you know a pract- like an anthropological practice that they're observing from a superior height. Uh, and I don't think any good historian would do that intentionally. But 
that was a knock on historians writing cultural history maybe 20 years ago. And, and I'm just curious what your, your thought was about that. But let me ask you, while we're talking about churches, one of the, the key moments uh, you describe is the separation of the, the Methodist and Baptist churches uh, nationally, but, but specifically how it happened in these border communities where if you're a Baptist church in Alabama, it's pretty clear you're going to be part of the Southern Convention, and if you're in Minnesota, you're, you're not. But if you're right on the border, which way do you go? And, and how did mm-hmm. these two cities divide? That was, uh, because that happened right in the middle of the era I was studying the, the split of the churches, that is how I became very much drawn into the Civil War era and the Civil War itself. So, um, this was, uh, in effect, um, the, the congregations in both Cincinnati and Louisville seem to be making choices and decisions about which way they should go if they should remain affiliated with the northern associations and denominations or if they should separate and join the southern ones just forming in 1845 and of course or through the 40s and early 50s and of course in Louisville this is where the southern Methodists met to actually formalize their new church in uh, 1845 in the mid 1840s so Louisvillians were watching this uh, what most of the Louisville churches did go with the southern, uh, the white, I should say the white Methodists and white Baptists joined those southern denominations, although within the churches there could be conflicts over that. The one thing that struck me, though, is how much the black churches in Louisville resisted that project um, and simply would have none of it. They uh, really wanted to disentangle themselves and stay as, you know, steer as clear as they could from those southern denominations. And so in Louisville, that was the fascinating break for me. Now, in, in is that separation of um, black churches from from white churches very dramatically, and um, the refusal of um, black Louisvillians to any of the overtures by the members of the newly minted Southern churches to provide some kind of watch care for black. Christians, uh, they just rejected that outright because of the uh, ascent to slavery that um, black Louisvillians seem to read into that separation. Um, in the Cincinnati case, there were... Well, let me just interrupt that while we're talking about Louisville, because I thought that was fascinating that the black uh, Baptist church was larger than the uh, than, than the main white Baptist church, yet it was technically 
not under its authority, but uh, uh, in some way subordinate to it. And so the black uh, congregation tried to get more representation. When they didn't, they just sort of stopped showing up at the, uh, the whatever the regional meetings were, were called and stopped contributing and went their own way. And there, nobody could do anything about it because they had more members than anybody else. Uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was quite impressive uh, demonstration that this is not you know, the, the agency of the the black church members. They were not simply passively watching while this happened. Uh, they they went their own way and they made it stick. Very much so. Very much so. Um, and, and I think from what I understood, this was unique. Um, in the story of the creation of the Southern Methodist and Southern Baptist organizations, uh, that Louisville's, that the way I described it is, is mm-hmm. a kind of secession from those connections, those church connections uh, by the black churches, um, that seemed unique uh, within the history of the of Southern religion, and I think it definitely made Louisville and and maybe Kentucky Kentucky generally just a little bit different from mm-hmm. uh, other Southern states. That unique history, and they the black churches really told that story as one of separation that they didn't want to have any connection to a slave-holding church as Southerners, Southern Methodists and Southern Baptists increasingly defined themselves in that way. So, yeah, that was a powerful pivot of the book, uh, that um, separating out, as it were, of black Christians and unwillingness to have any tainting you know, connection to a slaveholding church. Now, in the last chapter, you talk about Kentucky during the war remaining loyal to the Union. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, Patrick Lewis was on the show not too long ago. He wrote a book on uh, about a Kentucky slaveholder who enlisted in the Union Army, became an officer. And uh, uh, Lewis's argument was that there were Kentucky slaveholders who thought the only hope for the survival of slavery was within the Union. Uh, a separate republic would be a hopeless case, and, and, and slave, slaves would escape from it across the river. It would never succeed. Only with the Fugitive Slave Act and the federal government behind slavery could it endure. So he was loyal to the Union as a Kentuckian to preserve slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have some different arguments in there. Uh, what, what In just a minute or two as we're running short of time, uh, what what kept Kentucky in the Union uh, in your view? Well, I think uh, that, that certainly um, is a compelling argument that Kentuckians believed they would be able to preserve slavery uh, better under the Federal Union. But I, I think there were other things happening there, and I think Louisville especially made Kentucky distinctive, and um, its distinctive racial history pulled 
Kentucky in a different direction. And I think that Kentucky, more than other Upper South states, had a powerful emancipation movement through the 40s. And I think that that still had some lingering consequences for the wartime years uh, themselves. And I, I think Kentucky's unionism is almost a, a month-by-month analysis. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a shifting ground all the time. But I think there are specific groups, black Louisvillians, very much pressing for union. Also, the old legacy of that emancipationist movement in the 40s and into the 50s plays a role. Um, just a dawning sense that slavery is is a form of extreme violence and the union, uh, to have peace, they have to um, absolve themselves of this violence of slavery. Well, there are lots of interesting angles to this question. Uh, uh, there are so many interesting characters uh, who show up here. We discuss uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, Sam and Chase, others, uh, sometimes from unexpected angles uh, and showing how they contributed to, uh, to the outcome of this. With just the last 30 seconds, do you have another uh, project underway in terms of history research at this time? So I, I am thinking about a next project and possibly around um, historians. Uh, from the 1960s, 1970s, 80s, that generation of historians who were um, maybe considered uh, outsiders to the profession, women, um, other minorities who then studied the 19th century and tried to bring those stories into the mainstream of American history. I'm, I'm thinking about looking at that generation and um, their efforts to bring a different perspective to the study of the 19th century. Um, well, but that's, uh, yeah, that's my, my thinking right now. Well, it, it sounds good. I will say this book, Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland, uh, certainly does bring in different perspectives, uh, uh, all the topics in the subtitle, as well as many others. Definitely uh, a, a fascinating look at uh, this this pre-war era. Our guest tonight, Bridget Ford, California State University, East Bay. Bridget, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for the close read. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.